to understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Uh, hello, Rob. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. How you doing, Rory? Yeah, I'm keeping well. I just wanted to bring up a little, uh, a little something to worry about. Always fun. Uh, we can't trust images anymore. Can't trust <laughs> images anymore. The AIs are too good. Uh, Midjourney is an AI image creation tool. Mm-hmm. And they released a version 5, and a lot of it's photorealistic. I've seen um, Donald Trump at Pride marches. He's loving life. And <laughs> I've seen um, Joe Biden DJing. So from here on in, be skeptical of every image you see. <laughs> I don't know. I could I could imagine Joe Biden DJing, you know. I, I bet he'd, he'd, be, <laughs> he'd be into some of them old-timey jams. Maybe old-timey jams, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything's possible. Anything's yeah. possible. Uh, but hey, you know, if it makes people a little more skeptical about things, that can't, couldn't possibly be the worst thing. I always think the answer to those sorts of issues is always more context and more uh, more opportunities to exercise judgment. Uh-huh. Um, if uh, it becomes uh, less and less trustworthy, then people just have to think more, right? Uh, Absolutely. Or, or perhaps that's too optimistic a uh, too optimistic in estimation. Well, there will be a, a time of thinking, I think, and then it'll just become normal. Just a sort of baseline of no trust. Well, it's the way that uh, in the United States, we just don't use uh, phones anymore uh, because they've become so useless. Oh. We use our phones to text. We use our uh, phones to access the internet. But we, we, if somebody calls your cell phone, you just don't pick it up anymore because it's all trash. It's all junk. It's just assumed that nobody's actually calling you for a valid reason. It doesn't have to be that way. It, it, it actually be, sounds like an incredibly easy thing to fix through regulation. It's probably just a lobbying issue. But that's just you know the way things are, and we've, we've made do. Uh, so maybe uh, we'll just stop trusting online video of any kind. Unless it comes from an, uh, an approved, uh, well-known voice. Uh, like, 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 say, the More Freedom Foundation. You know, someone who's... Is there a certain Peter that a lot of people would trust? Ah, yes, yes. As you, we, we've, we've made it in a roundabout way to the, to the, the issue at hand today. Uh, the, the whole um, role of the public intellectual, and one public intellectual in particular, uh, named Peter Zihon, who folks have been drawing my attention towards for years now. And I think I've finally done a deep dive. I read his most recent book. I've got a produced video that's either already out or coming out soon, depending on when we, we're actually going to broadcast this recording. I think today would be a good day to discuss Peter Zihan. So when did you first become aware of Peter Zihan? So he first started showing up in my YouTube comments. I learned a ton from the comments on my YouTube videos. Uh, folks were like, oh, check out Peter Zion, check out Peter Zion. And, you know, often if I get one suggestion to check something out, I'll, I'll, I'll Google it very quickly and uh, give it a cursory check. But probably around the summer of, was it 2020 at this point? Or maybe it was 2019. Can't quite recall. Uh, I just started getting a flood of Peter Zion says this about this. You'd agree with Peter Zion on this. You'd disagree with Peter Zion on this. What about what Peter Zion says? So I, I started uh, looking into it, uh, and through the very simple avenue of typing his name into Spotify and uh, hearing, uh, he goes on a lot of podcasts. Uh, he's uh, a guy who's pitched, I think, now four books at this point with a very idiosyncratic- Nearly as many as yourself. <laughs> his books are longer. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he's, I think he's, he's, he's done more. But he's got a very idiosyncratic and very defined way of looking at the world. Uh, and it's very attractive. Uh, and I see the attractions. Uh, I think there's certain things that he gets very right, in fact. Uh, but also, there are things that he gets tremendously wrong. Uh, and I think it's it's an opportune time to do a produced video on uh, Peter Zion. I've got a couple clips uh, or, or live uh, videos that I've done in the past complaining about Peter Zihan, Peter Zihan thought. But I think it's a good time to do a more produced uh, deep dive on Peter Zihan because he's reached a, a, a new level of fame and ubiquity. Uh, he, he showed up on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, which is a huge... Wow, that's when you've made it? Yeah, he's made it in January. I can't imagine how many books he must have sold that week. 
I'm incredibly jealous. Uh, yeah, and he, you know, he went from showing up in my YouTube comments. I, I, I make geopolitics uh, focused videos, as Peter Zahan makes geopolitics uh, focused content. He went from showing up in my YouTube videos to showing up in my like college buddy WhatsApp. You know, uh, uh, friends from university being like, hey, what's this Peter Zion guy about? He seems pretty interesting. And I would agree that he is pretty interesting. Uh, but I would also, uh, I've got a, a fair amount of uh, fairly deep critiques of what he talks about. So many that I actually, I think I've mostly finished my draft of the produced video. And I'm like, but I barely talked about, you know, a quarter of the things I want to talk about. But uh uh, at a certain point, I have to, you know, uh, pull the plug and uh, uh, put a video out there. And if a lot of people watch that video, no doubt there'll be a sequel eventually. But um, would you like to start with the things that you agree with him on? I feel that um, America being very dominant for at least the next couple of decades and China not being as much of an issue as we've been led to believe are two things you may agree sure. on. Sure. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that he says that I don't disagree with uh, the importance of the issues he discusses, but I think that he takes it too far. Uh, and he's also got everything sort of uh, set in this overarching narrative of American withdrawal that I frankly just don't believe in. Uh, I, I don't see it. I think it's actually in the process of being radically disproven. It's going to be a weird year to be Peter Zion because on one hand, he's reaching these really new high levels of success. Uh, ubiquity, YouTube dominance. This is a guy who was a corporate consultant and public speaker, and I think fairly well paid to do that. But one of the reasons he's become so present in, in my world is because he, over the past couple of years specifically, he has started dominating YouTube. He puts out daily videos and not short ones, long ones, uh, dealing with anything in the sort of media space. And he, he has a number of interesting positions uh, that make a lot of sense to me, uh, but it's all sort of undermined by this, this sort of grand narrative failures. So things that he says that I really agree with uh, are China. Now, he goes much further than I do. He says that China is about to disintegrate. You know, by, by the end of this, this decade, China's not even going to really be a thing anymore. Uh, and I think, frankly, that's ridiculous. But I do think he's been very persuasive uh, and I think uh, correct to point out that uh, something I've been saying for most of a decade now, uh, but probably backed up better than what I had been saying, that China is in fact not a threat to the United States, which goes against a lot of conventional wisdom a growing avalanche of co conventional wisdom in the United States. And I would, I would see Peter Zahan as sort of a, an ally in that, in undermining the idea that China is the inevitable next hegemon or the, this big threat to the United States or a worthy combatant in the new Cold War. I, I just don't think any of that is really true. Where I differ with Zahan on China is that I believe that Yes, uh, by the second half of this century, the story of the world could very well be Chinese and U.S. competition. Uh, I, I do have faith in the long-term potential of China. He seems to think that there's a crisis coming that's going to destroy China. Uh, I more think that it's a crisis that's going to strengthen China. I think that the real competition starts once China ditches the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, we have to face off against a, a China with the rule of law. That's a, that's a really terrifying prospect for the United States. The current, the current Chinese Communist Party, that's, that's China on easy mode, as far as I'm concerned. The other thing that we agree on, and one thing that I, it's interesting because there's a lot, and I get into this in the video a little bit, there's a lot of distinction between how Zihan talks about things when he's in his daily YouTube video going on Joe Rogan, going on podcast mode, where he's responding to everything that's, that's coming his way, there's a distinction between that and his actual views of the world that are expressed in his books. And the views of the world that are expressed in his books are very in line with my own sense of how the past century has looked, which is he makes it pretty clear. He never uses the term U.S. empire. He even says, oh, no, the U.S. chose not to be an empire. But I would argue that's because he doesn't really understand what empire is. But he, he's very clear in his books about the fact that the United States has run the world for the past 78 years. 
And that is why the world exists the way it is, is because of choices that the United States made as a hegemon. Um, and it's, it's actually quite nice to read something that describes the way the world is in ways that you won't hear from Fox News, Harvard, the U.S. Congress, uh, the New York Times. They just won't lay it out in terms that stark. And Peter Zion does, and I appreciate that. However, there's, there's a lot of caveats to that. Parts of my problems with Peter Zion are his public persona, and parts of it are just deep, deep problems with his analysis of the world. Uh, he's really great, or I think he's really great. I have uh, friends on the Discord, uh, the patrons-only Discord for MFF, who have a lot more familiarity with supply chains and corporate practices in other countries and whatnot. And according to those folks, Peter Zihan's completely wrong uh, on those topics. Uh, but I can't really speak to that because I don't know much about those topics. And I think that Peter Zihan's approach to them is, is compelling and, and interesting uh, in some respects. But when it comes to the areas that I do know about, uh, history, politics, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, re international relations, uh, I mean, I guess that, that, that's like a subfield, but relations between countries over time, I think his analysis is nonsense. Um, it just doesn't, he, he really lacks a basic historical understanding of how the world has developed and how uh, geopolitics have developed, or rather just political relations between countries have developed since the Industrial Revolution. He just does not understand it and has a really basic cartoon version of how the world developed that really undermines his ability to predict anything. Um, and, and I think that that's... You know, he, his strengths allow him to make certain really valid points about, say, the weaknesses of China. Uh, just if you look at international commerce, it is blindingly obvious that we're living in a U.S. empire um, and have been doing so for a century, most of a century. Uh, and he sees that. But when it comes to questions of what's going to happen, what would happen if the U.S. withdrew, what a U.S. withdrawal would look like, is the United States withdrawing at all? I think Zihan really lacks the historical context to understand any of that. And that's why his, his central predictions are so faulty. What historical events is he getting the most wrong? I would say the entire 19th century, like all of it. Uh -huh. He just doesn't know it exists. <laughs> um, it, it, it's really, it's, it's really quite stunning. And actually I would argue that this is becoming less of a problem. Like he, there are certainly egregious parts of his most recent book where, uh, he, it's clear that he's still sticking to this old narrative that he's had, but perhaps he, him, him, he himself, perhaps some of his employees, um, have done a little more of a deep dive. There was this point where I was looking, I was like, God, I'm going to have to go down to the New York Public Library and, you know, um, and research like British Empire trade statistics to, to undermine his points here. I really don't want to do that. And then I got to page like 200 of his new book and there's like a whole list of British Empire trade statistics that completely undermine his entire story of the world. So I, I think, you know, Peter Zihon is- That was very nice of him for you. Yeah, I mean, it's very helpful. <laughs> this happens twice. This happened twice. He's also got this- this argument about the boomer cliff, the baby boomers are all going to retire um, and and that's going to change everything in an investment perspective. It's been obvious for me, you know, he puts that forward on every podcast. He talks about that. It's always been really obvious to me that that's nonsense uh, because of inequality. Uh, if it's if, if we lived in a more European environment, or maybe not even a European environment, maybe like a more Scandinavian environment, I don't know, who's got the really good equality numbers in Europe? Yes, yeah, definitely a lot of the Scandies. Yeah, if we, if we lived in, if, if the majority of the world lived in an environment like that, then what Peter Zihan is talking about might make sense. This idea that, oh, well, now all the baby boomers are all of a sudden going to switch from uh, investing in equities and growth companies and whatnot, and they're just going to go for really simple safe treasury bills and investment money is going to dry up and it's going to bring this economic apocalypse. Da, da, da. Like that would be true if we lived in a world where everyone in the wealth, everyone who was turning uh, 68 this year had an equal slice of wealth. Uh, whereas in truth, in practice, the way the United States works and the way almost every country in the world works outside of Scandinavia, including a lot of European countries works, 
is that 80% of the investment wealth is owned by like 5% of the population. And just because that 5% of the population is turning 65 or, you know, whatever slice of the population is turning 65, like people with that sort of wealth don't go, oh, gee whiz, you know, I'm a multi-billionaire. I guess I'm just going to shift it all into treasuries because I'm content making two to 5% a year. Like that's not, that's simply not how the world works. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to like go do the research. And then he actually does the research on that uh, in his book as sort of like a supporting his argument, even though it completely undermines uh, his argument. But that's the distinction that's kind of irritating about him is that while in his book, he's like, well, actually, this whole boomer investment cliff that I'm talking about is kind of nonsense because of income inequality. And he doesn't go so far. You know, he says, oh, so the U.S. will do well because we have income inequality, like he's making a case for it. Like as if income inequality is not something that exists in China or, you know, all of the rest of the world. Well, yeah, everywhere. Ev absolutely everywhere. So it just completely undermines his point. But he's still, that doesn't stop him from going on every podcast and saying, oh, yeah, the investment world's about to entirely change because the baby boomers are going to shift into boring treasury stuff and, and they're going to stop investing. And it's just like, that's not, that's not how the world works, man. Does he have any ideas that you would deem dangerous? Dangerous? I, I don't know if it's, if I'd say dangerous. I, I'm just realizing we haven't, I haven't really outlined what his thesis is. So his thesis is that the United States is withdrawing, that the United States is backing off of the world uh, that absence of the hegemon, the absent superpowers, actually the title of one of his books, is going to yield incredible crisis, incredible destruction. Now, I would argue that it's his lack of knowledge of the 19th century that allows him to imagine that this is possible, that if, if the United States withdrew... So like a worldwide version of what happened in Afghanistan? Yes, like the idea that if the United States withdrew more fully from the world trading system, the world uh, protecting the sea lanes or what have you, we'd instantly jump back to 17th century anarchy. We'd be back in the time of like pirates and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and that's just, that doesn't strike me as at all supported by any evidence. That's not what the 19th century looked like. Um, and he doesn't acknowledge that, that, that that's the case. Uh, according to Peter Zion, still in his most recent book, he says this, uh, the United States invented the idea of free trade and world organization. And if you believe that, then, yeah, you can believe that, well, okay, these are this is the only time we've lived in a world of free trade and, and uh, a, 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 an orderly hegemon telling everybody how it's going to be. And if you believe that, then, yeah, I guess it is easy to believe. Uh, that that without the United States, it'd be uh, it'd be Mad Max world all of a sudden. Um, but that's not the truth. That's not actually what happened. We've done an episode on the British Empire here. The, the, I think possibly one of the most ignored or, or most consciously hidden facts of human development is that the United States is the second worldwide hegemon, and the first one was the British. And for much of the 19th century, the British also maintained a system of more or less free, well, free trade for white people, of course. Um, uh, and, you know, we should, we should never, uh, never ignore uh, things like that. But it was not, in fact, the world of competitive empires that Peter Zihan describes. The world of competitive empires that Peter Zihan describes has not existed on this planet since large-scale industrialization. I think it's an entirely possible result that without uh, a large hegemon, we could fall into some kind of industrially enabled piracy or, or, or horror times or what have you. It's possible, but it is in no way guaranteed the way that Peter Zihan describes it. And I'd argue that a lot of the experience of the 19th century when we had a British empire with other countries that were independent and sometimes had interests that were at variance with, with uh, that hegemony, I would argue that for 80 years, we saw, well, um, so like 1853 to um, 1914, that's, uh, that's what, 60 years? For a solid 60 years, we had an example of a world system that got along quite well with, you know, a potential of, you know, without falling into this, this, sort, of, this sort of anarchy. Um, I've, I've confused myself and uh, gotten a little bit back on, backwards on my own arguments here. 
the point is that there's a lot more complexity and a lot more to this. And that's also something that Peter Zeihan has a real, real trouble with. I wrote an incensed uh, review of his first book uh, because of his usage of the term Bretton Woods. He refers to the U.S. system of hegemony as Bretton Woods. And that is just not true. You know, that's just not true. It is the Bretton Woods system was a system of fixed exchange rates that lasted from World War II until 1972, 1971 or 1972, whenever it was that Nixon took us off the gold standard. And, you know, this may seem like a little quibble, but like the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates of, of the gold standard, whatnot, is not the system of U.S. hegemony that we all have existed under uh, since the 1990s of rabid free trade, the WTO, uh, massive outsourcing. You know, so he just sort of pretends it's all one thing since 1945, and that's not the case. And of course, pretending it's all one thing since 1945 makes it easier to pretend that the kinds of changes we're going through right now are this massive epical change and withdrawal that's going to lead to anarchy. Uh, I would argue that even the, the most extreme version of the shifts we're seeing right now, if the United States goes whole hog for industrial policy, if, if it scrapes dramatically more of its industry out of China, that'll be nothing compared to the shift in U.S. hegemony we saw when Richard Nixon uh, abandoned Bretton Woods and took us off the gold standard. So the United States can remain in charge while shifts are happening. That's one critique of Zihan. Uh, even if the United States did manage to seriously step back, I don't see any real evidence that, that indicates we're guaranteed to fall back into the 1600s, 1700s, Mad Max world, ver empire versus empire, that Peter Zihan talks about. I don't see that guarantee. And then thirdly, like, we're just not withdrawing. Like, this is not something that's actually happening. And Peter Zihan has a lot of day-to-day -day commentary. Some of it's worthwhile, some of it's not. Um, but all of his specific predictions, all of his big systems and models rely on this idea that the United States is going to withdraw. I, I read his book, uh, the, uh, the End of the World is, is Just the Beginning or what have you. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there. He's got a chapter on nickel. Where is nickel? Who buys the most nickel? What's going to happen when the U.S. withdraws? But every, every third page, it's what's going to happen when the U.S. withdraws. And the United States is not withdrawing. It's just simply not happening. Um, and I think that really we're seeing that, the demolishing in detail of Peter Zihan's main thesis in February uh, 2022. Uh, if if we were becoming the absent superpower, uh, abandoning uh, the disunited nations to the end of the world, these are all titles of Zihan's books, if that were the case, then the U.S. reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine would have been, aw shucks, you're on your own, Europe, figure it out, where I'd be happy to sell you some gas if you can send some tankers over here to take them. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't think I need to tell anybody who listens to this podcast that that is not what happened. Uh, the United States, uh, I think Rory and I can get into it about uh, the relative contributions of Europe and the United States, but I don't think there's any question that the United States has remained very committed uh, to Europe. Definitely. Like, extraordinarily so. I think we've got uh, over 100,000 U.S. troops in Europe. Uh, for the first time uh, since, uh, probably since the, the, the Iraq and Afghanistan surges. It's kind of stunning that this guy can still hold on to the idea that we're withdrawing. Like, on, on any time frame, the only way you can make a case for U.S. withdrawal is if you consider the extraordinarily expensive and insane, tr literally trillion-dollar commitments of the Iraq and Afghanistan surges as your normal. Like they're called surges, you know, like they, it was, it was it, like they, they, those two events are a significant chunk of our national debt. They were incredible mistakes that yielded nothing. And this is to, to make a somewhat serious, not at all serious, but like a, a, a somewhat plausible case for American withdrawal, you have to argue that that's what we should be aiming for. 
that that's normal to have hunt, literally over 100,000 U.S. troops in these countries uh, where the U.S. has no real interests, uh, constantly fighting and dying uh, against the will of the people who live there in, in, a, extreme, in, in a very Vladimir Putin uh, type uh, type setup. So it, it basically anybody who thinks that we're at, we've withdrawn is basically making an argument for the United States to just be Vladimir Putin forever. When America withdraws, well, how does that look? Is that good for America or is that uh, a bad thing for America? Or do they just sit there in their like um, kingdom and watch the rest of the world burn? Yes. So Peter Zion is a huge advocate of uh, America's going to be fine. It's going to be a little difficult because all of our baby boomers are retiring, but but we, unlike Europe, unlike the rest of the world, like our baby boomers had kids, they're the millennials, they're going to save us. We might have a little bit of austerity, but we'll be very happy to sit here and watch the rest of the world burn. Like that, that is, that's explicitly Peter Zihan's argument. Uh, America will have front row seats with all their surveillance and all our phones software. Exactly. We can, we can, we can just sit back and laugh and watch the world die, which is a quite, quite an amoral uh, philosophy, especially if you, like me, see the United States as mostly responsible for what the world has, how the world has gone for the past 80 years. An initial title I had for my Peter Zion video was um, Peter Zion's End of the World Excuse, because he's not wrong to point out that the past 20 years in the world have been somewhat uncomfortable uh, and, and things don't look like they're trending in the best way. To be clear, it's infinitely more stable and happy and developing than like at any any given decade of the Cold War, for sure, or any decade before that in human history. But still, you know, the trajectory doesn't look great. And as I definitely talk about in this video, he's uh, he's part of a tradition of U.S. public intellectuals finding any but anything else to blame other than the actions of the United States. And I would say in his public profile, that's a lot of what he does. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the Peter Zihan video over the past year, and he talks about Russia and Ukraine because he has to talk about Russia and Ukraine. And in some, you know, he dives into the minutia. It's great for him. He can talk about, you know, Russia does the phosphates and the potash and the fertilizer and everyone's going to starve. And you know, he's, he loves he's, his agriculture. Yeah, loves to talk about agriculture. He's got the goods or what have you. But his explanations for why this war happened are beyond infantile. It's it's Halford Mackinder nonsense. It is the it's um, you know geopolitics is about geography and how it influences. Uh, I think that geopolitics, the term itself, uh, is a, as a broader thing. But it is born out of people like Halford Mackinder who talked about in a very prescriptive way, talking about oh geography is destiny, and because of this, you have to. Because this mountain is here and this river is here, you have to have X, Y, Z. And uh, it's nonsense. I, I did a video some years back talking about how Halford McKinder was wrong about everything. Uh, this whole obsession with the world island, this is uh, also a thing for the, uh, the famous Russian Dugin or something, a, a geopolitical conspiracy theorist or something. You know, the world island, you have to, which is essentially Eurasia, or the definition of where the world island is. And they're the new Romans and they will rule everything. Well, they're Russia, yeah, right. So that, that's what Halford McKinder was talking about, was that, oh my gosh, this incredible expanse of territory that the Russians took in the 1870s mean that you look at what happened in with Chicago and in the Midwestern United States, well, exactly that's going to happen in <laughs> in Central Asia. And that's the, I mean, you laugh, but that the Halford McKinder is what most strategy is based on in the United States military and the Pentagon is this idea that, oh God, you know, uh, you know, we have to be this, this involved because of geopolitics, because of grand strategy, because of what Halford McKinder said. And it's, it's just nonsense. That's not what happened. Like, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but like the great metropolises, metropoli of the 20th century did not, in fact, grow up on the Volga. You know, this was not what happened. Uh, the Urals are not uh, the, the, the Taiwans of, of, you know, today or what have you. Uh, it turns out, actually, uh, you know, it was it was the, the 19th century uh, or I guess early 20th century advocate of naval power that ended up being more right, Mahan. It, it actually continues to be the coastal powers that, that matter. Kinder's screw-up is very basic. He assumed that rail travel would eventually get cheaper than maritime shipping. 
uh, and it never happened. It just never did. You know, that's just it's still yeah, shipping is still incredibly cheap. Yeah, still incredibly cheaper than uh, any other mode of transport. And the interior of Central Asia never developed. Uh, turns out that the aspirations, you know, the United States as it catches everything catches things at that right moment when we had this incredible demographic burst, primarily in Europe, but elsewhere. And still in the mid 19th century, the greatest aspiration of a lot of people was to get their own plot of land and farm it. And, you know, Russia tried to do that in the early 20th century, when the greatest aspiration of most people was to move to a city and, you know, have sex with random people and get a job in an office. Um, and that is not so the United States got to have a Chicago. Russia gets to have a never-ending seas of permafrost interrupted by uh, petrochemical plants, uh, just not. Um, and, and so anyway, so I'm, I've gotten far off topic, but Zihan's discussion is pure Halford McKinder when he's like, why did, you know, why did Russia invade um, Ukraine? Well, it's because there's these six geopolitical gates that Russia must control, because if it doesn't control the gates, then it is at the mercy of the steppe. No, and it's just, it's hogwash. It is, um, again, just completely ignoring the way that industrialization changed everything about human existence. And there's two really simple questions that completely diffuse this, this standard spiel that Zayahan has been giving in every single uh, podcast uh, that, he's, that he's participated in. Uh, for the past year, which is, okay, if this is so important, then why did they give it up without a fight in the 1990s? It's because the folks in charge of Russia at that point believed that there was something called the community of nations, there was a world system that they were being invited to be a part of, uh, and it wouldn't actually matter that much. And of course, they couldn't possibly imagine that NATO would keep expanding after Russia had voluntarily given up uh, on the Cold War. A lot of people did this response to that as well. Well, you know, they were they were bankrupt. Reagan bankrupted them or Paul Volcker bankrupted them. So, you know, they had no choice. It's like, no, I mean, like it, it really could have been a lot bloodier. Um, we really could have there the, at any point in the 80s or 90s. A last hurrah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, we could have ended up with a nuclear apocalypse and uh, or just a really nasty war of about the size we're having right now. Easily could have happened in the 80s or 90s. But more in point is why didn't that happen in 2014? Like everybody acknowledges that in 2014, Russia really could have just wiped the floor with the Ukrainians uh, before the... Yeah, they had a lot of political instability at the time. It was... Yeah. It was perfect. They didn't have much of a military. I, I've seen, I think some interpretations, you know, people go a little too far in talking about how, how inadequate they were in, in 2014. There were very serious folks fighting, but, you know, famously, they had to be very reliant on some uh, somewhat distasteful militias to... Yes, uh, some extremists. Yeah. Who are usually the first in queue when such things happen. Indeed. Uh, but in 2014, Russia... If it wanted to do what it did in 2022, I believe the consensus is that they could have just rolled across the whole country, or at least they could have certainly rolled up to the, the Dnieper. Try with, to take the regions that they are currently occupying. With very little cost. Uh, so why didn't they do that? Well, they didn't do that because in 2014, they still believed that there was an international community that would, I mean, fair shake is not, uh, I don't think that's appropriate because, you know, the, the, their, their interests in crushing Ukraine is not fair, but that, they, that their interests as a powerful country would be respected by an international community of something like peers, uh, or essentially, to put it in more crass terms, that the United States would make a judgment that it wasn't worth completely throwing out Russia to uh, set up a more powerful and independent Ukraine. And what ruined that was the 2016 election and the obsession by the majority of the elites in the United States with this farcical idea that it was Russia that put Donald Trump on us, not the U.S.'s own problems. And I mean, just the vehemence and the viciousness of U.S. rhetoric around Russia, I think, is what convinced them that they had no other choice. And of course, Russia had another choice. Of course, Russia is the, you know, led by the vicious bloody monsters that made the choice to walk into this trap that the United States had been setting for it for a number of decades. 
Um, and they always, you know, Putin and his cronies always get uh, the lion's share of the blame. But it's not because of some, you know, Halford McKinder style gates of, you know, Bulgaria and Poland and blah, 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 blah. No, it, it's because political relations between powerful countries fell apart to the extent that they did. Um, and so that's that's the one of my main problems with Zihan is that, you know, beyond the fact that his basic thesis is wrong, but the, the way that he, as he's made the choice to become a much more public intellectual, I think he made a lot of his money since leaving Stratfor uh, at the beginning of the last decade. He's made a lot of his money as a corporate consultant, as someone who gives sort of private talks that occasionally show up on the internet and and do very well. He's now made a, a very conscious choice to become a full-time public intellectual. And most of what he's doing with that audience that he's built, with that platform that he's built, is make excuses for the United States, make excuses for the U.S. mismanagement of its world empire, um, make excuses for the fact that it's the United States that is the main chaos agent in the world and has been for 30 years now. I mean, to be clear, the world also needs the United States. It's not a contradiction to say that uh, the United States is incredibly powerful and it would be a serious problem if the United States were to completely abandon its, its hegemonic role. I agree with that entirely. But it's not a contradiction to say at the same time that it is in fact U.S. efforts that U.S. actions that are endangering the U.S. empire. That is not a contradiction in terms. And I think that a lot of Zihan's public intellectual work, I did find like one sentence in like one page of his book where he's basically concedes. It's like, yeah, like basically the biggest worry for the world is that the United States is a just as big a weapon of disorder as it is a weapon of order. And he does actually say that at one point. But in his public, public intellectual status uh it's all it's constantly all oh, the russians did this the chinese did this let me tell you about demographics let me tell you about the baby boomer investment cliff let me tell you about because anything anything at all to avoid talking about what really happened he's been doing a huge push on the cartel issue uh, i mean it's something that folks are that people are talking a lot about cartels in mexico recently i have as well uh, but he just never mentions at any point that the reason uh, the murder rate in Mexico quadrupled is because of very concrete choices by the Bush administration to uh, force or cajole or bribe the Mexican president at that time to dramatically accelerate uh, the drug war. And that's like that's another U.S. choice. But no, that's not that's not something we want to talk about. It's just, you know, the Mexicans are just naturally vicious and. It's got nothing to do with that $3 billion that we uh, gave them to do this thing. So he's quite often telling his audience what they want to hear, especially when it's a private audience? Or a public well, or a public audience. I think he's, I, I, you know, he's, he's a better, probably a better businessman than I am and ha wants to uh, appeal to as wide a portion of the U.S. viewing public as is possible now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's entertaining stuff, uh, but it's, it's also just wrong. Um, it is providing a faulty image of the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think worth highlighting. The demographics thing is interesting. It's he, cause he's really, uh, becoming, it's funny. People get the image. He's becoming the face of being concerned about demographics on the internet, essentially. And that's a that's unfair to a lot of folks. There's been a lot of folks who've been getting very heated and, and worried about uh, demographics for decades now, but I think he's becoming the most prominent public face. And I think the concern about demographics, the the just the simple fact that the rich world is not reproducing to the extent that its social provision systems may require. You know, a lot of social welfare systems are built on the idea that there's going to be, you know, two, you know, twice or three times as many workers for every retired person, and that's getting to not be the case in a lot of places. That's a real huge problem. It absolutely has some of the effects he talks about with innovation and this, that, and the other thing, 100%. But I think that Zion, along with a lot of other folks, sort of slides into what I what I call uh, demographics millenarianism. Uh, you know, millenarianism is the, the, the obsession with the idea the world is ending. Uh, I think it's like, I think around the first millennium, uh, Christians, you know, like, oh God, it's about to be the year 1000 and it's all over. 
Um, so it, it's, it's sort of demographics millenarianism is just as ridiculous as the overpopulation millenarianism that we... There used to be a thing, I think it was big with um, the Victorians, to keep the world population at a billion. And anything above that's unsustainable. Well, you may be, yeah, yeah I think you're thinking of Malthus going all the way uh, uh, to the back. It's famously, it's one of the most famously um, wrong economists that we talk about. But what's fascinating about him is that uh, he, his work was so groundbreaking and so interesting. Actually, kind of Halford McGinder as well. There wasn't an, an economist, and Malthus was sort of before we had the word economist. But uh, uh, his work was so groundbreaking that despite the fact that his predictions have been completely disproven decade after decade, what he had to say was interesting enough. And Mal Malthus, this is, I think he was a he was a reverend or a vicar or whatever whatever it is. Yeah. Um, in the 1700s. And he would talk about, uh, well, there's just this carrying capacity, and that's why we have wars and famines, because the world can only carry so much. And of course, he said that when the world population was like uh, 800, you know, 800 million, and now it's 8 billion. But actually more, and the thing about Malthusianism, uh, you know, he, 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 so significant, he got his own word, Rory. It's very exciting. Uh, the thing about Malthusianism is that it comes back, and it comes back, and it comes back. And in the 1970s, it was tremendous. Uh, there's this guy, Paul Ehrlich, who is in his 90s. Uh, you know, he's the Henry Kissinger level durability. And he just got a 60 Minutes, uh, 60 Minutes is a news program in the United States. And he got this sort of worshipful covering of his ideas, which a lot of people thought was pretty outrageous because he was making predictions in the 1970s saying, like John Malthus, who's saying, well, by 1985, we're going to have mass starvation everybody's going to die, we can't carry, you know, we just can't do it, can't keep things going. And then you may have noticed that in 1985, we did not, in fact, have uh, mass starvation. Uh, in fact, we've got probably two or three more times more people than we had in 1985, and things seem to be going. And obesity is nearly a bigger issue than starvation. So things are going just fine. But it, it's that give or take. So Paul Ehrlich was completely wrong. And I think the demographics millenarianism uh, millenarians like uh, Peter Zion are also not completely wrong. And it's not like Paul Ehrlich was completely wrong. There definitely are regions and times where overpopulation was a real concern uh, and was a real difficulty. Uh, and some of the family planning uh, stuff that was part of that whole soup of overpopulation concerns has been tremendously positive and tremendously good. And a lot of the concerns about demographics that Zion is advancing are worthwhile. But I think Zion is the equivalent of like the, or the mirror image of the overpopulation guy in 1970 is like the world's going to starve to death by 1985 with his sort of catastrophism. Like there, there need to be changes in the way that we treat families. Uh, there need to be, uh, you know, I guess I'm, Jesus, I'm rounding 44. It's beginning to look like I may not be someone who has a family. But uh, but I, I think that we absolutely need to make serious shifts in Europe and the United States towards incentivizing families more. Uh, you know, I feel Japan would be the one everyone's worried about with a very old population. Um, they seem to have a, a perverse fixation on work which seems to result in not so much family time. Americans wouldn't know anything about a, about a perverse obsession with work, Rory. We're, 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 we're all about, about work-life balance here. So Japan is fascinating and it's definitely a trend center for a lot of folks because, yeah, they're, they're, they're dealing with it. Their population is actively shrinking. And the way that they've dealt with it is through something that China certainly can never do. Um, and not a lot of countries can do. The way that Japan has dealt with it is found ways through its unique mix of fairly strong military power, incredible financial wealth, sophistication, and expertise at supply chains. They've found ways to sort of have their young population and young profit centers everywhere else in the world. Uh, you can do that if Japan's doing that. Uh, you can't do that if Japan, China, Europe, and the United States are all doing that. Like that—that's not that, that. There just isn't. There isn't. There just ain't that many young people around. So there have to be serious changes in terms of uh, like child tax credits, or just you know universal daycare, or or you know just whatever we need to do uh, to get to a point where rich countries are capable of replacing themselves. Uh, and it's I think the way that Zihan talks about this is like. 
these countries are done, man. Like it's over. It's incredibly dismissive the way that he speaks about uh, these things. And Russia is done. Like, which is part of his success as a, a public speaker. Uh, but it's, it's like you, you just need to make changes. Uh, Hungary is not a country that uh, uh, I am a fan of uh, on, on many, many levels. But they made a huge point of putting in place some pro-natal policies, tax credits, uh, number of number of I don't I'm not I don't know the intricacies of it. And I remember reading some article that was mocking these efforts uh, and you're like, oh, Hungary did all of this and all they managed to do was bring their fertility rate from 1.1 to 1.5. And I'm like, are, are you kidding me? Like, that's that's halfway like that's halfway to where, where you need to be. Like, I think arguably for like a sustainable country or like to make the math work, like maybe you got to be a 2.2 or something like that. Yeah, like, slightly over because two people make one person. So and then there's, you know, two to replace. You lose some along but the way. These countries are also going to find a plateau. They're not going to constantly expand or contract. They'll eventually, I feel a lot of the um, fertility rates to do with uh, female education <laughs> and also then with the child mortality. So now that we child mortality will lower and female education will increase, there will just become a new normal. And I don't think it'll be quite a, you know, everyone's doomed. It'll just be, yeah. you know, terrible things will happen in Russia, but it'll eventually plateau, say, 90 million. You know, it's not just, it's not infinite death and destruction and everyone isn't quite as competitive as maybe he's letting on. Yeah, well, I mean, I tend to think we've, we've sort of, as you know, I keep coming back to this, my, my, I think we've sort of reached the limits of Reaganism in a lot of ways and in a lot of countries. We're sort of... I do see a lot of... Um, push back to that I feel the main thing is um, it seemed to swap finance and work uh, the labour force used to be very powerful with unions both in the UK and America mm-hmm. and then it was like basically all the money was in finance and working doesn't really pay so there definitely seems to be a pushback to that so hopefully workers will get more pay and the finance people maybe not so much yeah uh, absolutely and I, and I think there's just a, a variety of things Is for 40 years we've been like our instinct has been make things harder for families, make things, you know, we got to be rough and tumble and we're, you know, we're going to make it, make it really hard for people to get ahead without like being in finance, <laughs> you know, or without like, you know, being this massive entrepreneur, like, I'm sorry, but not everybody can be the massive entrepreneur uh, that, that, you know, dominates their, their geographical area or segment. Um, and, you know, that massive entrepreneur can maybe, you know, have nine kids. That's not going to make up for the other 5,000 people in that area only having, you know, 1.5 to zero kids. And so, yeah, it's, we just need a differing model. And I think that so much of the demographics millenarianism, the sort of Peter Zihan approach of just like, this is just the way it is, rooted to this incapacity of imagining uh, a political economy that functions a little bit differently. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, don't start singing the Soviet anthem here. I'm not saying like, you know, we're, we're going to all turn into crazy socialism saying we can go back to where we were in the 1950s, you know, <laughs> you know, like, like in the United States anyway, like go back to the new deal with like maybe less Jim Crow and less uh, racism, you know, like just like the level of basic respect for labor and within a capitalist system. Like, I want a healthier cap- more capitalist system, and it is in more than possible, infinitely possible, within a healthier capitalist system to have a rich world country that has economic dyna- dynamism and also is capable of replacing itself. Um, so I-, I think it's worthwhile that folks like Zihan are out there sounding the alarm about demographics and making more people aware of these issues because they are real issues. I just think that there are also real solutions uh, that, unfortunately, for the biases of a lot of people in the United States and the developed world more generally, is going to involve a level of government participation that we've been trained to be uncomfortable with, but that our grandparents, you know, the people who won World War II, built these economic miracles that we've all been, you know, essentially pooping over and and despoiling uh, for the past 40 years. Uh, you know, those the, uh, uh, those folks would be completely comfortable with the level of government intervention we'll need to sort of solve these demographics problems, um, is my sense. Um, so kind of just more basic things like childcare? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
free or uh, as close to affordable childcare without basically saying, what's the point in working because I'm just paying another person while I work? Yeah, uh, more democratized access to housing and healthcare, of course. Um, I mean, that's less of a problem. In, Walkable in, cities, all that carry on. Yeah, in Europe than it is in uh, the United States. But but yeah, just yeah, there, there's just so many easy fixes for these demographics problems. It's incredibly frustrating. Or occasionally just copy what the Canadians are doing? Uh, to some extent, not exactly. We'd like to do... We'd like to learn lessons and do it better. Um, oh, yes, yes. But it's, it's, it's closer to an American model than stuff happening in sure, Europe. For sure. It, it's very, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think Zihan, it's a, it's a shame for such a smart guy, doesn't actually propose many solutions. But that's that's like a lot of what you read in the, in the United States press and media because a lot of U.S. media is rooted and has been exclusively giving success to people who have completely incorporated this ideology of government can't do anything, government can't do anything. So you just like, man, look, everybody who doesn't have a college education in the United States is just dying. Like that's a real, that's, that's a real thing. They, they call it deaths of despair. Like that, the, the opiate crisis is, well, the opiate crisis is more broad based than former drug crisis crises, but still it's like, it's mostly it's mostly the non-elites who are dying. Well, yeah, to me, my stereotype of it would be um, people injured, say, that worked in mining towns. Doctor prescribed them this, and now they're horrendously addicted to this drug when they were working incredibly hard for their nation. Well, yeah, and it's uh, no question that uh, not just mining. Any anybody who works in physical labor is more likely to have uh, some kind of some kind of issue like that. So that's that's just like that's just a standard. Every every couple months new york times are like oh look the u.s life expected because this is so bad and it is not people who are going to college u.s life expectancy has been falling for two years wow like and that's not oh no four years that's pretty I think. shocking this, even before covid u.s life expectancy was falling because so many people were just dying and the the approach is gosh you know we, we really need a, a market-based means best tested solution is is Amazon going to come up with something to fix this? Because there's nobody else we can think of who can. And this is they are moving into pharmaceuticals. It, well, it just sounds like a it, that that may sound like a joke, but that's actually the the sort of learned helplessness of most of our prestige public intellectuals. Just it's just unimaginable that government would be able to do simple things to solve these problems. That reminds me of uh, when Homer ran for office. Uh, can someone else do it? Can't Amazon do it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's very, oh. it's very, uh, very similar. Though I don't know, man. I yeah, I think you made me watch that that actual uh, TV show, and I think that actually had a lot of a lot of Reaganism, a lot of a lot of sort of libertarian uh, neoliberalism to it. Uh, in fact, that was sort of complaining about uh, you know people expecting the government to do things for them, which honestly I think we should have more of an expectation of the government uh, doing doing some things. It has extraordinary capacities that we've we've well they can turn afghanistan upside down <laughs> yeah. they could help their own yeah afghanistan just makes me sad specifically on just peter zihan withdrawing from things he remind me of afghanistan it's there's actually a sentence in his book where he says uh the u.s uh withdrew all regular troops from the middle east in uh by 20 the end of 2021 and i'm just like what what what, what? like it's, it's just like like, 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 I mean, they, like that one. That one was just mystifying. It's like, how did that get? Like, it's such a. It's just wrong. I mean, as we talked about, well, I think this, his he might have a personal definition of regular trips. Of course, there, there's the details there, and I, but, but I mean, my the only distinction I'm aware of is like regular versus special forces, and we've got uh, a few thousand regular troops, not special forces, you know, uh, troops in Iraq and Syria, and we have literally tens of thousands. Of U.S. naval personnel, uh, Air Force personnel, Army personnel in Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just like what, like what, like I, I was thinking about. Like, so in the aftermath of World War II, and this is something that I wish people would talk about more uh, with the anniversary of the Iraq War that's coming around. It's like in the aftermath of World War II, we built out this massive basing infrastructure. And then have just maintained it ever since. What what nobody's really acknowledging is that we have the same, obviously not on the same scale as like Korea, Japan, Germany, Italy, but like we have a, in a smaller version. One of the biggest legacies of the Iraq War is that we now have that in the Middle East as well, uh, with these bases and all the little Gulf monarchies. 
Um, and they're not going anywhere. And they are big bases. They are big bases. Uh, so this idea that we're... That uh, Fitbit may reveal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Fitbit data. Uh, people, yeah, there's all kinds of weird open source ways to figure out where U.S. soldiers actually are. Yeah, there'll just be some random base in the middle of nowhere that has a very neat line around it, and then it's like <laughs> soldiers are jogging around the perimeter giving away their data. Jesus. One would hope they'd uh, uh, fix that. I'm sure they have by now. Uh, but uh, it, it's just, uh, it, it's extraordinary, and it's it's an indictment of, I think, U.S. discourse in general, just as much as it is of Peter's Ihan, that people can just uh, just sort of gloss over these these blanket assertions that we're not in the Middle East anymore, or we're, we we've withdrawn from the world. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just not it's just not reality <laughs> in a really fundamental way. No, definitely in not. In a really fundamental way. I just just occasionally when you look at the flight tracker, the nearest airport, you'll just see a, a U.S. military plane flying in. <laughs> in every airport in the world? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Even the ones they shouldn't be in, like Shannon? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's what we, that's, that's, that's what we do. It is, it is the U.S. empire. The subtitle of one of his books, I think in 2016, was The Absent Superpower, asserting that because of the shale revolution, the shale revolution made it into the subtitle of the book, because of the shale Re revolution, the United States was going to not need to be involved with the world anymore and would just stop being involved with the world. And again, this is complete historical ignorance. Like the United States was pretty involved with the world before we needed Middle Eastern oil. We didn't need Middle Eastern oil in large uh, volumes until the 1960s. But it would suggest the only reason America ever left was purely to get oil. No reason to do anything else. Yeah, that, that's which is uh, inaccurate, uh, as the United States was the largest uh, producer of oil uh, up until uh, the 1960s. And now, and it, now it's back as number one. Now is again. Yeah, now is again. So that that's wrong. But also, like if you think about it in detail, like what we are now with what we were back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s is... Now, I, you know, I don't quote me on this exactly, but I think we might actually be the largest exporter of natural gas. Well, now. definitely uh, the Ukraine crisis didn't hurt. Yeah, yeah, I think we're the... You're exporting a hell of a lot of natural gas. So so this, this Zihan's claim that, like, we're going to withdraw from policing the sea lanes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we're the biggest exporter of oil and gas in the world? I just, I don't, there's, there's, some, there's some dots that don't connect there. Some dots that don't connect there, you know? And how does that gas get shipped? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we don't care anymore because, you know, we're, we're, we've got, we've got our, our, our bit handled. And to be fair, Zion does say that, oh, well, you know, the U.S. is going to maintain, you know, some of its, um, its, its special friends. It's going to, of course, stay carefully intertwined with Mexico and maybe, you know, Japan because they've got such a big military and we like them and, and, and the UK maybe. And it, you see, he sort of adds to this I guess list. you can tailor that for whatever audience you have if you're in the UK. Oh, yes, you're the special friend. Yeah, I think that, if it's, um, I think there's a lot of that. The Philippines, you're the special friend. It's, it's probably, <laughs> it's probably weirdly coincident with the, the, the Stratfor, uh, book of clientele, you know, or, or the Peter Zion, uh, or English speaking audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, just kind of fascinating. And I did, I, I did this research and then somehow managed to lose this research and it won't be in the video. What's the best type? Yeah. I love that. Uh, but I, I was like, well, you know, okay. So, cause he says multiple times in his end of the world book that this withdrawal isn't gonna happen. It's happening. It's happening right now. We're about to fall into this morass of piracy, death, and Mad Max destruction. It's happening now. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, so like what was 2022 in terms of piracy? And there's actually a uh, industry group of uh, shippers who maintain data on this. And they said that like some, there was something like 140 acts of piracy. But then you look into that and like an act of piracy is apparently... Some guys in a skiff off Somalia, you know, firing a machine gun at their boat. That's technically an act of piracy. There were two, count them, two hijackings. Wow. In the entire world in 2022. And this this uh, industry group was happy to celebrate that it was the lowest, the lowest uh, level of uh, violence, you know, violence towards shipping uh, in since they started collecting data. So, yeah, so the, the, the world, folks, it's not ending. 
um, it is not ending. The shipping lanes, they're fine. And America is doing its best to keep them open. Yes. But no, just Zaihan, like, is part of this. He just, just unthinkingly will recycle the views of, like, the dumbest militarists in the United States. So, I mean, I just told you, like, this is the safest world shipping ever, you know, ever. And then Zaihan will just put in his book that to adequately police the, the, the shipping lanes, we need eight times more ships than we have now. And I'm just like, so we need eight times more ships just because we just had the safest, you know, safest year for world shipping in human history. But we need to, you know, we need to octuple the amount of U.S. naval ships. And it, it's just he brags in the first pages of his book uh, how many times he's gone to to brief people at Langley at the CIA headquarters. And it's just like a lot of his commentary. You see a very, uh, a very smart man um, who just has to tailor a lot of his commentary to some of the dumbest people on the planet. Uh, the folks who've been mismanaging U.S. empire for the past 20 years. Well, you know, arguably CIA for the past 70, you know, fail nerds. Anyway. And if you want more of Rob talking about Zaihan, you can catch his video on his YouTube channel, The More Freedom Foundation YouTube channel, not podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But you should also meet us here every Monday for the podcast because it's awesome. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.